Thank you for taking the time to listen to this sermon from Seekers Christian Fellowship. We believe that God's Word completes the believer, making them fully equipped men and women of God, ready for every good work. It is our prayer that through this message, you're challenged by the Word of God, built up in love for God and one another, conforming to the image of Jesus Christ. Thank you, worship team, for that, for leading us in a time of worship. I'm just going to ask all of you to turn in your Bibles to Nehemiah chapter 7. We are in chapter 7 in the book of Nehemiah. I want you to open the Bibles, and I want you to take a quick look at this chapter. There are 73 verses that you will find in this chapter. On a cursory look, it's quite a chapter with the listing of many individuals and their families. And you would question what significance does this genealogy or the family ancestry have for the 21st century reader. But as you read this carefully, we realize that this chapter serves as a pivot in the book of Nehemiah. Now, Nehemiah chapters 1 to 6, which we have already covered, it described the restoration of the wall of Jerusalem. The wall has been built. Now, Nehemiah chapters 8 to 13, it tells us about the restoration of the people of Judah. But Nehemiah 7, which functions as a pivot, it begins by describing the precautions that Nehemiah took to guard the newly walled city from attack. Then in the verses to follow, we see that Nehemiah knew that the safety of a city under God depends more upon the residents, the people, than upon its walls. Because Nehemiah knew that every good gift and every good work of the residents are from above. It is God who gives knowledge. It is God who gives grace. It is God who gives everything. Therefore, all must be to him. So everything done by the residents must recognize the divine providence. So church, what we are seeing in Nehemiah chapter 7 is that in order to count for God, we must commit ourselves to the things that matter to God. If you recall when you were young, we tend to follow what other people are doing. We might have role models in our own homes, our older brothers or older sisters or uncles or aunts or someone that we know and admire. We think that all that matters is to mimic him or her and to become one of those people. But when you get older, your views are different. You begin to now wonder, what am I accomplishing that really matters? How can I spend my life so that it counts for something worthwhile. For many today, the American dream is so prevalent. With good jobs and a nice house and two children and plenty of money, they believe they were living the American dream. People, in fact, sacrifice their own time, talent, and treasure to achieve this dream. It is done at the expense of relationships, and it is done at the expense 
of our own walk with the Lord. But as you get older on reflection, you realize that your bank account will not count. Your social status will not count. Your appearance won't count. Your possessions won't count. All other things that so easily consume our time and energy when we are young will not go with us. So the key question I want to ask today, what matters most in our lives, in my life, in your life? Church, everything, every time we encounter a death within the families or within close circle, the brevity and the uncertainty of life loom large on our faces. It is only at these times we begin to see life differently. The word eternity takes a new meaning in our lives. It becomes so real to us that forces us to think about things differently. So as you ponder the reality of eternity, it brings this question to mind. Are you living for what matters? The correct answer to those questions is to spend our lives so that they count for God and His purpose. If our lives count for God, then they count not just for time, but for eternity. Let me repeat that. If our lives count for God, then they count not just for time, but for eternity. But sadly, even for believers, we are so bogged down with the things of this world that it easily gets our attention of Jesus. It'll help us if you can ask yourself, every one of you who are listening to this message, in light of eternity, what matters most? Believe it or not, church, Nehemiah 7 has some answers to this important question. It is one of those chapters that make you wonder why God took up space in the Bible for it. Especially when you realize that verses 6 to 73 in Nehemiah chapter 7 are essentially the same as Ezra chapter 2. Why would God put this long list of unpronounceable names in the Bible? But when you pay close attention, you will see that in Ezra chapter 2, this list of names are those of who returned from Babylon under Zerubbabel in 536 BC, and they are served to document who were true Jews. But in Nehemiah chapter 7, nearly a century later, it answers this question, this list. Who is available to repopulate the city and to provide for temple worship. So Nehemiah uses this list to instill in the people a reminder of their personal and national identity as God's people, and to encourage them to fulfill their responsibilities in light of this identity. So church, this morning, as we look at ourselves, knowing our personal and spiritual identity as God's people, what are our responsibilities? That's the question I want to leave with you. In other words, what matters most to you and to God? 
So let us dive in in Nehemiah chapter 7. It speaks of four things that matters most to God. And first is found in verse number 1. Then it was when the wall was built and I had hung the doors, when the do gatekeepers, the singers and the Levites had been appointed. The first thing, let me tell you what matters most, is our worship matters to God. Now, Nehemiah says that after walls were rebuilt and the doors were installed, he appointed who? The gatekeepers, the singers, and Levites. Rebuilding the walls was more than just security and fine living. The gatekeepers watched the gates. There were musicians appointed to worship. The walls are rebuilt. The doors were installed. The gates were hung. Now people are ready to engage in their primary calling to worship the God Almighty. So everyone had their specific jobs, but everything led to the same purpose, worshiping and serving God. So church, this is the very vocation of heaven. We might have different vocations in this world, but when we go to heaven, there's only one vocation, which is worship. A good part of heaven will be spent praising God in corporate worship. So as we read in Revelation, it says in Revelation chapter 5, the saints gather with the angels and the four living creatures and the 24 elders sing, this is what they were singing, worthy is the lamb that was slain in heaven. And in the same chapter, chapter 5 of the book of Revelation, in verse number 13, it says, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. Worship. We will be so caught up in the beauty of the glory of God that we will be lost in wonder, love, and praise. Now, in the little town I live, Dundas, we have rode through the mountainous terrace called the Sulphur Spring Road. And I would like those of you who want to hike, that's a beautiful pathway to go on your bicycles. Now, every time I go to Ancaster during the fall season, I purposely take the road during, during this time to enjoy the beauty of the autumn scenes. At times, I just stop that vehicle and just Stand in awe, simply gazing at the beauty of the trees and the leaves. Now, when you come on a scene of natural beauty, even if you don't know anyone standing by, you want to say something to them. Wow, that's awesome, isn't it? You may be talking to yourself. But you still say, wow, that's awesome. We do that because beauty creates spontaneous praise in us. And praise is best when it is shared. So church, worship is not only the vocation of heaven, 
we need to know that we have been created for that purpose only. We read in the book of Isaiah, it says, everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for what purpose? For my glory, God says, whom I formed and made. And in the same chapter, in verse 21, he says, the people I formed for myself, that they may proclaim my praise. So not only worship is the vocation of heaven, is worship that we have been called to do even while we are here on this earth. Church, heaven will be a time of drinking in the infinite beauty of the infinite God and sharing it with others. So it begs the practical question, Pastor, how do I become a true worshiper? That's the question. The three things that I want, to, I want us to uh, focus on to become a true worshiper. Number one, as I said, is you must worship with awe. In the book of Hebrews, the Hebrew writer says this, Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful, so worship God acceptably with reverence and awe. For our God is a consuming fire. So the first thing is we need to worship with awe. Awe is defined as an overwhelming feeling of reverence, admiration, and fear. It produced by something or someone that is grand or extremely powerful. You know, church, as we just walk out and look at the creation, the creation speaks of the beauty of God. You just stand in awe. The Bible says in Psalm 19, the heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims His handiwork. So you worship with awe, looking at who our God is. Secondly, you worship with abandonment. In other words, nothing should hinder you from worshiping. If you are going to watch a cricket match or a basketball match, and when we are truly engaged in that game, you are not going to care about who is seated next to you as you jump every time a, a ball, a, 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 what do you call it, a ball is shot properly. You jump with joy. You are not worried about the circumstances. Nothing would hinder you from rejoicing in that victory. Worship is like that. Worship with abandonment. We should be able to put aside anything and everything to worship God. The Bible says, shout for joy to the Lord, all the earth. It says, shout for joy. Worship the Lord with gladness. Come before Him with joyful songs in Psalm 100. In Psalm 149, it's let them praise his name with dancing and make music to him with tambourine and harp. Church, that is how we have been called to worship God. With dancing and make music to him with tambourine and harp. Church, worship is not a spectator sport. It is not something we come and sit and watch. It is a participation activity. Worship isn't something we attend like a sporting event or a concert. 
Worship is something we enter into with everything we got by putting everything else aside. So the first thing is worship with all worship with abandonment, and the third one is worship with our life. Worship is not determined by what we say, but how we live. Because it's your passion that drives your life, isn't it? It's your passion. Let me ask you, what is your passion? Where is your passion directed? In your house, in your car, in your profession, or in your wealth? But our passion must be directed towards worship. Your worship should be the most valuable thing for you in your life. The Bible says, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So church, if you want to live a life that counts for God, grow as worshiper. By growing to know God, you worship with awe, worship with abandonment, worship with our life. Secondly, as we read through verses 2 and 3, our godly character matters to God. Our godly character matters to, matters to God. Nehemiah was an exemplary leader. I know that most of us, even whether it's the seminary or whether it is in, in, in churches, we are always taught about Nehemiah's leadership. He's a great leader. While the administrative skills are necessary for effective leadership, the main requirement, let me repeat this, the main requirement is godly character. All of us. So what we are seeing in, in verses 2 and 3 is Nehemiah is picking two men here. Let, let's look at verse number 2. That I gave the charge of Jerusalem to my brother Hanani. If you recall in the very first Nehemiah chapter 1 when we did our studies, Hanani is the guy, is his brother who brought the news about the struggles that were going on in Jerusalem. And it says in verse number 2, as they continue, Hananiah, the leader of the citadel, for he was a faithful man and feared God for, for more than many. So Nehemiah picked two men, Hanani, his brother, who had come to him at Susa when Nehemiah was there. He appointed him as the civil leader of Jerusalem. Then he picks up Hananiah. He was appointed as the military leader. Because he was a man of integrity and feared God more than most people. And as we continue to read verse number 3, we see that, And I said to them, now this is the instruction Nehemiah is giving to Hanani and Hananiah, do not let the gates, Jerusalem, gates of Jerusalem be open until the sun is sought. And while they stand guard, let them shut and bar the doors and appoint guards from, from among the inhabitants of Jerusalem, one at his watch station, another in front of his own house. So together they were charged to not open the city gates until the sun was hot and to bolt them and stand guard when they were shut. 
They were also to appoint guards from the residents of the city, each in front of his own home. So as we look at these ones, when Nehemiah appointed Hananias, we can see there are three godly character traits that are mentioned in this passage. The first one is, going back to verse number two, is that it says, Hananias, for he was a faithful man. So the first godly character trait is faithfulness. Faithfulness. Hananiah was a faithful man. The text says he was someone you could depend on. That's what faithfulness means. He spoke the truth and if he promised to do something, he did it. If you want your life to count, work at becoming a faithful person. You know, faithfulness is a, a characteristics of the fruit of the Spirit. So, as we walk in dependence on Him, the Lord gives us that gift of the Holy Spirit. And one of the characteristics is faithfulness. Galatians chapter 5. Church, all of us are stewards of the gifts and time that God allots to us. Those of you who are in the ministry team, God has gifted you with a unique gift. You are the steward of that gift. And Paul says that it is required of stewards that they be found trustworthy and faithful. Look at this passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse number 2. Moreover, it is required in stewards that one be found faithful. So as a steward, what is expected of you is faithfulness. Since a God is a faithful God who always speaks and keeps his word, as we grow in godliness, we will grow in faithfulness. So it begs the question, church, how do you develop faithfulness? How do you develop it? The firstly, we should recognize the responsibilities that God has given to you. You know, start with do not neglect the small things. However menial the task would be, do it wholeheartedly as unto the Lord. That's what Colossians chapter 3 says, isn't it? Whatever you do, do it unto the Lord. It could be church that you have been given an assignment, so sanitize the place once the service is over. Do it wholeheartedly. Do it wholeheartedly. For example, if you have been asked to sanitize every mic on the stage, you sanitize every mic on the stage. If you're asked to sweep the floors, you sweep the entire floor. If you're asked to wipe the chairs, you wipe every single chair. Small task, be faithful. If you are faithful in little things, you will be faithful with much. In Luke chapter 16, we see that God, the Lord says, he who is faithful in what is least is faithful also in much. 
And he who is unjust in what is least is unjust also in must. So to develop faithfulness, the first thing is that we should recognize the responsibilities that God has given to us. Be faithful in the little things. Secondly, to develop faithfulness, we should keep our relation, relational priorities straight. All of us. Your relationship with God first. And secondly, this is something that you may not like, it is the relationship with your family. Before you go to your friends and your colleagues and your co-workers, relationship with your family. If I do not order my family relationships properly, I am not qualified to lead in local church. And it's very clear in 1 Timothy chapter 3, Paul writes to Timothy and he says, "Is one who rules his own house well, having his children in submission with all reverence. That's what he says. For if a man does not know how to rule his own house, how will he take care of the church of God? So you must have your relational priorities straight. First God, then your family. Thirdly, to develop your faithfulness, we must learn to use your time more effectively. Faithful people learn to use their time well. So if I am to examine and test if you have been faithful, the first thing I will ask you, can I see your schedule? As I, in my early days as a pastor, my mentor used to ask me this thing. I need to see your checkbook and your schedule. In other words, how good a steward I have been. Have I been faithful in the blessings that God has bestowed upon me financially and in the form of time? Now, we looked at the, the godly character trait. The first one is faithfulness. It's not only faithfulness. As we continue to look at verse number two, look at it. He was a faithful man and feared God more than many. So the second godly trait that we can, character trait that we can find is the fear of God. The fear of God is a matter of degree. You can see that here, isn't it? Some fear God a little, others fear God more. For the unbeliever, the fear of God means what? It means the fear of the judgment of God and eternal death which is eternal separation from God. That is the fear of God for the unbeliever. But for the believer, it means having a deep respect and reverence and awe for the power and authority of God. Rather than causing someone to be afraid of God, the proper fear of God will lead one to love Him. To love Him. When we have the reverential fear, here it is how it will affect our lives. How do we know that we fear God? Let me ask you the question. How do we know that I truly fear God? Let me quickly walk you through just six pH tests for you. If you really fear God, you become very obedient to God. Obedient to God. Ecclesiastes say, fear God, keep His commandments. If you really fear God, you will grow in sanctification. You, want, you are not standing still in your spiritual growth. 
The Bible says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, isn't it? Thirdly, if you fear God, you will grow in wisdom. You will become wise each passing day. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of what? Wisdom. If you fear God, you will worship God wholeheartedly. In the Revelation chapter 4, 14, we see, fear God and give him to glory. This is the appeal of the angels. And then we find that if we fear God, we receive rewards. So you will not be seeking the worldly rewards, you'll be looking for heavenly rewards. In Proverbs, it said, the reward for humility and fear, fear is this, of the, is riches and honor and life. That's what God gives. And if we fear God, here's the last one, we gain humble confidence. In Psalm 33, we see the fear God, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear Him. When you fear God, God's eyes are on you. One, those who hope in His mercy to deliver their soul. Why is God's eye on you? Here's the best part. To deliver our souls from death and to keep us alive in famine. Wow. So do you fear God? When you see who God is and you realize who, who you are by way of comparison, you fall on your face with fear. Realizing that He could rightly cast you into hell for the, for the many sins that you commit. Even when you know that He has been gracious to you through Christ, you do not presume on that grace by becoming irreverent toward the Holy One. Church, remember that He knows your every thought and every deed. And so you seek to please Him in all you do. So if you really want your life to count, grow in the fear of God. And thirdly, in the third godly character trait that we see, first one we saw faithfulness, Second one, we saw the fear of God. And the third one that we see is found in verse, verse 3 again. It's watchfulness. Now what Nehemiah, as you read this, Nehemiah not only built the wall with the sword and the trowel, but he also posted guards and gave careful instructions. And we read the instruction earlier. To these appointed leaders, the need to guard the city. The instructions were given to these guys so guard the city. Nehemiah trusted God, but he also, church, listen carefully, he set up a watch. These are not contradictory thoughts. You trust God, but why should you be watchful? Won't he take care of you? These are not contradictory thoughts. In fact, Jesus wants us to be alert, and, and Peter writes that be of sober spirit, be on the alert, your adversary, the devil prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. The enemy is on the loose. That's what he's saying. you got to be alert. We need to watch out for the spiritual dangers that Satan scatters across our paths. If we want to avoid falling into sins, that would destroy us. So church, as married couples, be alert that the dangers that could de destroy your marriage. 
as parents be alert of the dangers that could destroy your children as church leaders we ought to be alert of the dangers that could damage god's flock you know especially at the time of success a critical time to be on the guard now especially as you look at the children here of israel the walls were built the gates were in place it would have been easy to kick back and let down the guard isn't it it is at that time the enemy would attack when you are going through the crisis time in your lives you are more on your knees and asking god for protection isn't it but when god answers your prayers when you are able to pass your exams and you are able to finish your courses and finish your studies and now you let your guard go now i don't need god i have passed my exams i got my job that's when the enemy enters in we ought to be extremely careful at that time we need to be specially on guard in our own homes church now nehemiah instructed here in verse number 3 that we see that that each one stand guard in front of his own house so fathers and mothers starting with the fathers being the spiritual leaders you ought to be the guard in front of your own home every one of you guard what movies and tv shows come into your home guard what comes through on your home through the computers take caution if your children spend the night at a friend's home as to what they plan to do and who is supervising them instruct and warn your kids about spiritual dangers and how to call if they need help so what have we looked at so far church we looked at number 1 is our worship what matters most to god secondly our godly character matters and we looked at the three traits the faithful our faithfulness our fear of god our watchfulness because these things matter thirdly as we go into the rest of the passage reading from verses 4 to 73 which i am not going to do i am not going to read the 73 verses from nehemiah chapter 7 you will see a list of people's names and how they contributed to the project now this tells us something about ministry especially about this preserving work that nehemiah is moving into what we are learning from here and and uh, uh, keith uh, alluded it during the time of worship we the people matter to god every individual matter to god these people can be grouped in different categories and we are not going to do that i just explained to you for your own personal study later on as you look at some we see the original leaders verses 6 to 7 and Jews who were laymen were mentioned from verses 8 to 38 the priests were mentioned from 39 to 42 the levites were mentioned the singers and the gatekeepers were mentioned the temple servants were mentioned from 46 to 76 Des- descendants of the servants of solomon was mentioned from 57 to 60 and those who whose ancestry was questionable was mentioned from 61 to 65 long long passage of various names and people group so what do we learn from this church 
Now, Warren VSB, this is what he says. One of the key lessons we can learn from this long chapter is that people are important to God. That's what they're learning. When God wanted to take the next step in his great plan of redemption, he called a group of Jews to leave the place of exile and return to their own land. The Lord did not send a band of angels to do the job. God used these common people, his own people, who were willing to risk their futures on the promises of God. So this particular chapter reminds us that God keeps accounts of his servants. He knows where you came from, what family we belong to, how much we gave, and how much we did for him. We cannot hide from God. We can try to run from him, but we can never hide from him. When we stand before the Lord one day, I'm talking to believers, we will have to give an account, church, of our lives before we can receive our rewards. And I'm sure every one of us, we desire to give a good account. The emphasis of this chapter is that ministry is not about the bricks and mortar, not the walls, not the gates, not the doors. Ministry is about people. So what do we see here as you read through from verses 6 to 73? Individuals are important to God. All those in His names does not mean anything to us, but it means something to God. You know, during the darkest days of my life when my dad was taken away for a massive heart attack and a cardiac arrest, and it happened actually 30 years, I was at a point of lost. I did not know. I often wondered whether God knew me, whether God knows my tears, whether he could really understand the pain I am going through. When I read in the scriptures, he placed the stars in the sky and he has given names to the stars. Wow, what a mighty God we serve. If he had numbered the stars and he knows every star, won't he know whom he created? Then I was comforted by saying that I am fearfully and wonderfully made. God knew me even before the time of creation. I was set apart for God. Wow. Individuals are important to God. So church, if you think that you are not important, you may not be important to your family, you may not be important to the community, you may be a, a person who is not recognized by anybody, but I want you to know that individuals are important to God. Families are important to God. As we see, the family groups are mentioned in this passage. The church is built on families and the family is strong, the church is strong. No wonder Satan is attacking the families today. And also you see that there is a specific reason why they listed the uh, names of men. Men are important to God. It does not mean that women are unimportant. Let me be very clear on that. But God has entrusted them. There is a heavy calling on the man, on every man. 
We need to be obedient to God in how we lead our families. And when we fail, the family fails. So what we learned so far is that we ourselves are important to God. Individuals, families, and men. Lastly, we're going to look at verse number 6 and verse number 73. Just so that I can bridge those verses together. So let's look at verse number six. These are the people of the province who came back from captivity. Please follow along very carefully. Of those who had been carried away, whom Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had carried away, and who returned to Jerusalem and Judah, everyone to his city. Verse number six. Then verse number 73, this is what he says. So the priests, the Levites, and the gatekeepers, and the singers, some of the people, the, the Nethinim, and all Israel dwelt in their cities. What is Nehemiah saying here? Let me first make the statement and let me explain to you. Our commitment to the Lord matters a lot, matters to God. Let me explain. The people in this list, please follow along carefully, returned from Babylon to Jerusalem and Judah, each to his own city. They had the option, though. They could have easily stayed in Babylon. It was not easy to pack up and to move across hundreds of miles through hostile territory with Nehemiah, to a land that had been devastated by war. Imagine yourself. Put yourself in the position. Here you are. You have been taken as, as, as hostages, as, as they have taken you, and they are keeping you there in Babylon. And Nehemiah says, we have been redeemed. We are going to go back to a land where? A land that was devastated by war. But I'm already comfortable here in Babylon. I've been living here for 70 years. I know there are hardships, but I'm used to it now. I don't want to go. I don't want to move away from my comfort zone. That's not what they said. Because those children of God, they knew God's promise to their forefather Abraham. Church, what was the promise? The promise of the promised land. The Lord has given Abraham this land. They understood, they trusted, and most importantly, they committed themselves to God's purpose in spite of the hassle and hardships involved. So the list reveals, follow along again, there's a reason why he has written it this way. This list reveals people of varying class within the people of God. Look at this. Some were priests, some were Levites, some were the gatekeepers, some were the singers, some were the people, the Nethinim, and all Israel dwelt in their cities. Yes, but there was one thing in common to all these people of different classes, different professions, but they're all children of God. There was one thing in common. They were all committed, irrespective of their status, their class, their roles, even responsibilities, they were committed to their calling. And the return 
was complete. Isn't it? Israel were once more in a place in accordance with God's allocation after the conquest. The summary is, the end of the story as we read this, is a cry of triumph. Hallelujah, that's what they're crying out. We made it. We are here in our promised land, safe and secure. Israel has been restored. And they are back in their old cities, the promised land. Now church, the end of the story would not be what it is, listen carefully, if the people had refused to leave Babylon from the captivity, isn't it? If the people had refused to come through the hostile enemy pathway to this land. If the people had not accepted and trusted the God-ordained leadership of Nehemiah. If the people had refused to do their parts as instructed by Nehemiah, obeying his commands. If the people had not completed the tasks assigned to each one according to their calling. If the people were not committed themselves to God's purpose totally. Amongst us today, church, some are called to preach. Some are called to teach. Some are called to serve. Some are called to wait. Some are called to lead. Some are called to follow. But everyone has a role. Every one of you. Each one of us are called to do what God has assigned to us. When we are committed to the roles assigned to us, we will fulfill God's purpose in our lives, in our churches, in our families, but most importantly, in our lives. And the end of our story will be just like the end of the story of them. A cry of triumph in the new Jerusalem. So church, I appeal to you. Just like these Hebrews who took their rightful places in the service of their Lord for this to work out. We who had been brought out of our Babylon that once we lived in, having been bought by the precious blood of Jesus Christ. And every one of us, we are known, we have been conferred with these titles. We are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. We are called to carry on the God-ordained role. Until our work on earth is done or till he returns. So my appeal is let's we be fully committed to God's purpose by giving our utmost best. Then one day, church, we'll all be together in the fortified city of the New Jerusalem where our primary vocation is worshipping the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. May our lives be committed to what matters most. So in closing, let me summarize what matters to God. What should we be focusing? What should we be doing? Our priorities of life. We looked at four things from this passage. Number one, our worship matters to God. Number two, our character matters to God. 
When I talk about the character, we looked at three character traits. Our faithfulness matters to God. Our fear of God matters to God. Our watchfulness matters to God. Then we ourselves matters to God. Whether we are going to be, we are individuals, whether we are families or whether we are men, we matter to God. And last but not least, our commitment to our God-given role matters to God. Shall we pray as the worship team comes? Heavenly Father, we thank you. We praise you. We exalt your name for this study that we're able to do from Nehemiah chapter 7. We thank you for ministering us this morning and allowing us to understand what truly matters to you, reflecting on the life of your children, the children of Israel. Father, as we have heard, as we have been exhorted, we pray that we will be the doers of the word now. We'll apply these principles that we have learned today in our own lives, that we will be true worshipers, that our character traits will be that of faithfulness and the fear of God and watchfulness, knowing that every one of us, we matter to you, that our commitment to God-given purpose will be there until the day that you call us home or till the day you return. So help us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen and amen. God bless you.